Thank you. Thank you, brother. Glory to God. Called to love, called to serve, called to forgive, called to die, to truly live. That's, that's beautiful and it's, it's true. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther, if you are not already there. Uh, you've been challenged through song this morning. Let me put it on each of your minds uh, to not drift this morning. Uh, no preacher is perfect, certainly not me, but God is perfect and His Word is perfect. And I believe He wants to speak to you this morning. Not to the person in front of you, not to the person behind you, to the person to the side of you, but to you. Are you ready to listen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we honor your name this morning. We desire to honor your name in a way that glorifies and pleases you. But Father, this morning as we open your holy word, Father, I am unworthy and I am unfit as a sinner and as a man to speak your holy word. And yet, Father, I am thankful for your grace and for your mercy. And everyone that calls on your name in this room this morning is thankful for that grace. And we pray this morning as we open up your holy word that we will see you, that you will make your presence among us, that you will speak to sinners in need of a Savior, in need of a guiding Father, in need of a comforting Holy Spirit. We need you today. So please speak to us through the book of Esther. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. We are in the book of Esther. plan this morning is to give you a little bit of background. Which, by the way, how are we doing this morning? Is everybody doing all right? Yeah. All right, I like, there you go. Right, well, good morning. Uh, I forgot that part. I do want to say good morning and and uh, I think you're going to be blessed as we look into the book of Esther this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. And uh, my prayer is that you will begin to see more than when you came in today, the beauty and the wisdom and the power of our God. Esther, as we continue our study of the, the minor prophets, uh, those books in the Old Testament with the hard to pronounce names, that are uh, short books. That's why they were called minor. They were short prophetic books. We're looking at Esther. Esther doesn't really fit into this category. Uh, it's not a minor prophet book. However, it happens during the time of the minor prophets, and so we just thought it was a, a, a good place to insert this uh, this morning. Uh, and so um, just a few things about Esther that I want to, to let you know. If you're taking notes, you get a lot of information this morning, so write those down. You should in your bulletin have a, a blank sheet of paper that you can, or a, a blank side that you can uh, write some notes in. And so let me encourage you to do that, and you'll have these notes uh, from here on out. Esther is one of uh, two books in the Bible, two Old Testament books named after women. Uh, it's very interesting that Ruth, Ruth's the only book named after a non-Jew. Ruth is a Gentile woman that marries a Jew, and Esther is a Jewish woman that marries a Gentile. The book happens about 475 years before the birth of Christ, somewhere in there. It takes place between the time of Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7 in the records that, that were given in the book of Ezra. And the only books in the Old Testament that come later than the book of Esther, the only whole books, will be Nehemiah 
and Malachi, most people would agree on. And this takes place after the 70 years of captivity that the Jews uh, experienced. For those of you that are unfamiliar with that, basically what happened is, at one point in time, um, after King David, uh, the Jews uh, had a kingdom. Uh, they had three, and when it was united, they had three kings, Saul, David, and his son Solomon. And the kingdom was together at that point. Well, after that, the kingdom was divided, and it was a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The time we're looking at, the, the northern kingdom has been taken away, and you have nine or ten tribes that, that are really never heard from again. Um, and you have a southern kingdom that, that lasted for about 320 years, but because of their continued disobedience, God says, I'm going to send you into captivity again. Remember, they had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. Well, this time God sends them into captivity at the hand of the Babylonians, and the person that started it all was King Nebuchadnezzar, and we looked at him when we studied Habakkuk a few weeks back. And Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, he destroys the, the wall around the city, and he takes most of the people out of Jerusalem, he takes them captive. And so they are in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, or what's counted 70 years, the temple is rebuilt, and that's the end of the 70 years. And there are 50,000 Jews that go back with a guy named Zerubbabel. They go back with him to Jerusalem, 50,000, to rebuild the temple and to re-inhabit the city. But there are far more Jews than that. And so where are they? And what's going on with them? We don't have a lot of information on that. But this book of Esther gives us a little bit of information. This book takes place over about a 10-year period. Uh, inter interestingly, the book never mentions the name of God. This is the only book that never mentions the name of God. Never mentions praying. Uh, there's been some controversy over this book. Should this be a book in the Bible? A battle that's raged for, for years. And, but most, most people consider that this book is canonical, or in other words, it's part of the canon. It's part of, of what should be in the Bible. And I tell you this, the more and more you read this book, the more you see that. Because even though it doesn't mention the name of God, I'm convinced that's by design. And many people are convinced that's by design. You cannot just accidentally leave God out of this book, but the author wants you to see something special. He wants you and me to see the irony and the reversals and the amazing what we would call coincidences that happen in this book so that you will, at the end of the day, look at this book and look at what happens and say, there's no way that that happens by coincidence. There's no way that all of those ironies happen by chance. And it points to a God that appears to be hiding. And that's the beauty of this book. It makes you focus on what's going on in the happenings, in the events. There, as I said, there are tremendous ironies in this book. We're not even going to touch the surface of how many there are. Um, there are four main characters. Esther, of course. Esther is a, a Jew. She becomes queen. Uh, we're not going to really look at how she becomes queen this morning. Uh, there is Mordecai, who is her elderly cousin, who basically adopts her and raises her as his own. He is also a Jew. Then we have Haman. Haman uh, is not a Jew. He is an, an Agagite. Try saying that five times fast. He is an Agagite. Sounds like you got something in your throat. But he is a, an Amalekite. He is a non-Jew, and he is the great enemy 
of the Jews. He is the big bad guy in this story. And then you have the king, the king of the Persian Empire. We are no longer in the Babylonian Empire. There has been a new empire that has come in, and this empire is the Persian Empire, and their king, Ahasuerus, or as he's also known, uh, Xerxes, if you're reading modern history. So see, I'm giving you a lot of information this morning, but this is important for the background. He's the ruler of the Persian Empire. And this story takes place primarily in the city of Susa. Susa is a city that is actually in modern-day Iran. And so there's a little lesson here for us. When we're looking at modern history, when we're talking about our big important history, which it certainly is important, we're talking about, you know, the crazy deal with Iran or the, the nuclear deal with Iran or, or, or Iran uh, sponsoring terrorism, whatever political station you're listening to, whatever political slant you are, when it's talking about Iran, it's talking about Persia because it used to be Persia. And so the lesson here is that history, history doesn't begin with your birthday. History happened way before you. His story is bigger than you and is bigger than me. And we see here in the Bible, and I'm sure many of you didn't know this, how far east the Bible gets. As far as I'm um, aware of, this is as far east as the Bible stories actually get, the city of Susa. And here we see this uh, great ruler, um, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, ruling the great empire of Persia. When you look in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says that he ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. I've got a map of it on the screen here for those of you that like visuals. There's a map there. When we looked at Habakkuk a few weeks ago, we were looking at the Babylonian Empire, which was really great. But now, look at how much it's expanded. Look at this great Persian Empire. And of course, we know that this empire is going to fall to Alexander the Great and the Greeks um, in just a few short years. But look how great this empire is. Is And you know what? There were Jewish people spread across probably all the provinces of this empire. Look how far God has taken the Jews and thus taken uh, his message at this time. You can see Jerusalem on the map. You can see Babylon. You can see Susa or Shushan. There's a a town that's actually there today that is called Shushan. Uh, It is not, uh, of course, of the the same caliber as as what was once there uh, in Susa. The history of the book of Esther... It, along with other historical references, tells us that this king Xerxes could be very cruel. He was a madman. He he could be very angry. He had, had, it it really appears he had a drinking problem, and he also had an anger problem. And when those two things came together, it really created some some fireworks. And when you understand that, it certainly certainly helps to explain some things in this story. And one thing I want to add before we get into this is that there's actually nothing romantic about this book. You know, some of the modern pop culture, even Christian cultural things that I've seen, they want to portray this book as some kind of romantic book, similar to what they do in Ruth. There's nothing romantic about this book, friends. This is, um, Esther was basically a slave. And so this book is not about romance. Uh, It is not about the love of a man and a woman. Uh, It is about something other than that. And so where we're going to pick up today, Esther has become queen by God's Uh, providence she has become queen and she's hidden the fact that she is a jew because there was a fear that if they discovered that they were jews that there could be some that would hate them and of course we see that unfold 
And so let's pick up. We're going to look at the story from, from the point that Esther is a queen, and, and we've divided it into basically eight parts. And so the first part that I want to look at this morning, if you're in your book of Esther, in chapter 2, is that Mordecai saves the king. That's the first big event in this story. Mordecai saves the king. And, and by the way, after we're through looking at these eight parts, I want to draw some truths out uh, for you. But this first part is Mordecai saves the king. Verse 22, But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. All you need to know is that Mordecai uncovered a plot against Xerxes, and he actually came to the rescue of this king, and that will play in later in the story. Part two has to deal with Haman, the great enemy of the Jews, rising to power and actually coming up with a devious plot to kill the Jews, not just in the city of Susa, but in all of the provinces of the Persian Empire. A mass execution. We look in chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman, this man, is filled with a demonic rage. He doesn't just want to wipe out one man who offends him. He wants to wipe out an entire race of people. In part three, we see Mordecai finding out about this plot. And he goes to Esther. She is the queen now. She has some measure of authority, he reasons. And so he goes to her for help. And here is what transpires in verse 10 of chapter 4. He tells Esther. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned but has one law, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to the king for these 30 days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. And so, in other words, what she's saying is, in this kingdom, you cannot voluntarily go before the king or you will die unless the king accepts you, extends his golden scepter and accepts you. And so it's a very great risk. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now why does he think that? Why why does he think that? Again, I think this is a hint at God. Mordecai is hinting at God. Why Why does he have such confidence that deliverance will arise for the Jews? And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. There's a famous phrase, for such a time as this. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. Why are they fasting? You typically fasted in order to get help from a deity. Why are they fasting? Again, I think this is another hint at the God who is hiding or appearing to hide. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to law, and if I perish, I perish. In part four, we see Esther gains an audience with the king. She succeeds with the king, and she invites him to a personal party. Verse 2 of chapter 5, When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And so Esther doesn't just come out and request it. She has a plan. And so the plan involves getting Haman and the king to come to a party. After this first banquet, the banquet goes really well, we see that Haman schemes then to kill Mordecai. He can't wait any longer. He is fed up with Mordecai, and he's ready to kill Mordecai. He's still going to kill all the Jews in months to come. He has set a date to kill them. But right now he is consumed with rage toward Mordecai. In chapter 5, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Now this, this, is a, this woman is a piece of work, I'm going to tell you. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. He's bragging on himself. Such arrogance and pride. Look at all this stuff. That Look at who I am. And before you, get too, before you get too high and mighty on Haman, let me remind you that sin does this in each of us. This is our problem. Is that in our own little way, we all want to be worshipped according to our own standards at certain points in time. And we want to kick God out of our lives, and we want to be God. And that's the essence and the pride of sin. And we are seeing a full-blown instance of it here in Haman, but let it cause us to have self-reflection in our own lives. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate, Mordecai had ruined poor Haman's joy. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, remember I said she was a piece of work, have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now what you need to understand this gallows, and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be too vulgar here, but this wasn't a typical hanging gallows like you would see in an old western movie. This was basically either a platform or some way that it was a, it was a stake. And this one would have been 75 feet high that you would have impaled someone on. And so Haman and his wife and the friends, their desire was to hang Haman dead 75 feet in the air for all to see. That's horrible. But then we come to part six. And it is part six when we really start to see things change. We start to see the downfall of Haman. We start to see some kind of powerful force at work here. 
in some powerful ways. We see that King Xerxes actually honors Mordecai, and it will be at Haman's expense. Chapter 6, during that night the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written, just so happened that this is the part of the records that they, they read. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs. It sounds like a, a wrestling tag team. Two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this, for saving my life? And the king's servant who offended him said, nothing has been done for him. And right at that moment, guess who is at the court of the king ready to come in? Haman. And Haman walks in and, and the king is, is motivated to, to honor Mordecai for saving his life. And he says to Haman, what shall be done for the man whom the king wants to honor? And Haman, of course, in his pride and his excitement, thinks that the king's talking about him. And so out of his own mouth, he says to the king, what should be done for the man is that one of the king's crowns should be put on his head. One of the king's throne, uh, uh, robes should be put around this man. The king's finest horse should be brought, and this man should be set upon this horse. And one of the king's finest nobles, one of his finest servants, should take the horse and should walk this man around town and should brag about this man and proclaim this man's glory. That's what should be done for the king, that, the man that the king wants to honor. And imagine Haman's horror when the king says, that's a great idea. I want you to take Mordecai around town and honor him. And this wrecked Haman. He covered his face. It wrecked him morally and emotionally, emotionally, and he went home with his head covered. And this begins his downfall. And so we come to Esther's second banquet where she actually reveals Haman as the enemy to the king. And we read, The king arose in his anger from drinking wine after Esther had told him about Haman's plot and what he had done or what he was intending to do. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine. And he went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As, word went out, as the words went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Mordecai would go on to become second in command of the Persian Empire. And we have seen this before when the Jews were in captivity. We have seen it with Joseph in Egypt being second in command to Pharaoh. We have seen it with Daniel, who was honored by Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and became second in command after he told Belshazzar his dream. 
And it's amazing how this pattern has repeated itself. And there's only one explanation as to who is behind it. And finally, we get to part eight. Esther has to approach the king again. She has to go before him, and again, he extends his scepter, and she succeeds, and she saves the Jews. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which had devised evil, he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. Now what the king couldn't do was he couldn't take this back. In that kingdom, once the king gave an order, you could not revoke it. But what he did do was he said, you can, you can set out an edict, you can, you can uh, uh, give an order that all the Jews in all the lands can be preparing for battle. And they can take down their enemies on that day. And that's what they did. And we see in verse 13, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves over their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. And the Jews would go on. On the day that was supposed to be their demise, they would destroy 75,000 of their enemies throughout all the provinces. Now why is the book of Esther important? The book of Esther is important for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons it is important is if you were going to give a modern history of the Jewish people today, you would be missing a big piece of the history, a big piece of the puzzle if you left out Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler, and the destruction of six million Jews. In the same way, if you took the book of Esther out of the Bible and you left out the largest scheme, the largest attempt at a race, at the lives of the Jewish people, since Pharaoh had tried to attack them with his army when they were crossing the Red Sea a thousand years earlier, you would be missing a very important part. And so this is a very important history of the Jewish people, of God's people. And remember, if we have no Jewish story, we have no Jesus story. So Esther is not a book of romance or even courage. All of the characters are flawed. It's a book explaining the great threat to the Jews and their great rescue by a God who had appeared to be hiding. And though God, a thousand years earlier, would destroy the armies of Pharaoh in the waves of the Dead Sea, the author of this book wants you to see God, even though He is never mentioned, and He wants you to see Him in the ironies, in the amazing turn of events in this story. And you know what? If you spend enough time looking at your life, you will also see God working in and through and behind the scenes in ways that you and I are amazed with. And there are ways that He has worked that we can't even imagine. So allow me to, to draw three truths from this. First, the truth we draw from the book of Esther and God's character is that God prepares our mission. God prepares the mission of His people. What, remember what Mordecai said? He said, Who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this? 
You know, you may think to yourself, I'm a, I'm a nobody. You may think to yourself, well, I'm not gifted like that guy. I, I can't speak, or I don't know enough facts. Or maybe there's been too much sin in my life. Or I'm the wrong age. Whatever your excuse is, whatever your reason is, whatever is holding you back, realize that God has you where you are for such a time as this. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. God has your mission in life planned. He has the good works that you are to do today and tomorrow and as long as you are on this earth. They are prepared for you. Get excited about walking in them. You may think, I'm not that important. I'm not as important as Esther. Yes, you are. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you are involved in His plan, you are just as important in a very powerful way, as someone like Esther or someone that speaks to hundreds or to thousands on Sundays. And that's part of the problem with our church culture in America is that we don't believe that all the time. But we need to. You're a part of the church. You're a part of the body. And God has good works that He has created, that He has prepared, and He's ready for you to walk in them. Are you ready? Whatever it may be, it may be something big today. It may be something small tomorrow. It may be just going home and loving your wife. It may be going home and discipling your children. It may be reaching out to that coworker. It may be talking to that person at the restaurant. It may be investing long-term in the life of a child, mentoring them, discipling them. Embrace the reality and the calling, not the definition of life the world wants to put on you. Open your heart and your mind and your eyes and walk in what God has prepared for you. Secondly, not only does God prepare our mission, God providentially cares for His people. That's a great message of this book. You know, there's this thing in our culture that we talk about called luck. There is no such thing as luck. Okay? I know it's hard to get out of our vocabulary, but luck is nothing. There's no such thing as chance or accident or randomness or luck from God's perspective. And honestly, we need to have God's perspective. You aren't lucky. You are blessed. When we, you know, I understand that sometimes it's harmless and I get caught up. I'll, I'll talk about, I'll say good luck or something like that. But you know what we're doing? We're taking God out of that. When we, when we attribute that to some kind of random force, we are taking credit away from God. And I'm not saying we need to go around and slap people on the hand anytime they, 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 they say a word that's not perfectly consistent. What I am saying is that we need to change our heart and our culture to realize that God is behind things. That you aren't lucky, you are blessed. You were blessed to get that job. You weren't lucky. You were blessed to get that wife. Amen. You, you weren't lucky. And all the wives said, Amen. Amen. Luck is nothing. Adam read Acts 17. Look at it. From one man he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where we live. God has even determined where you live today. That doesn't mean you won't You'll, you might live somewhere else tomorrow. 
You might be at a different job tomorrow, but God is behind it. Embrace what God is doing. Embrace that power of God. Believe in it. There's a term. I said providentially. What does providence mean? One of my goals this morning is to explain that word. When we talk about the providence of God, if you're going to break down that word, pro means, means forward. And vide is a Latin word for see. It's where we get the word video. And so it's to see forward. Providence is akin to our word provide. And so when we talk about the word providence, what we are saying is that God has seen, not just seen something in the future, that's foreknowledge, but God has seen to something. He has seen to the care of something. God sees to the care of all of His creation, and He sees to the care of His people as well. He is in control of all of it. We see this uh, in a, a powerful example in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, Here I am. Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Of course, we know that God has offered his son in the place of us. And that we can be saved, we can be forgiven, if we will trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. If we will make him Lord and Savior of our life. Verse 14, Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. You may hear people talk about a name of God called Jehovah Jireh. That means God provider. God the provider. God is my provider. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said this, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs on your head have all been counted. Don't be afraid, therefore, you are worth more than many sparrows. God is even in control of everything, my friends. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching us to pray. He says, your father knows the things you need before you ask him. God is so, some of you are worried this morning about something. God is so far ahead of providing for you, you have no idea. He's been ahead. The uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which is a, a Bible training tool from hundreds of years ago, it said this about God's providence. It says, The Almighty and everywhere present God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. There is hope for you today. There is hope. That's what we should get when we think about God's providing care for us. There is hope for your child today whatever they are going through, whatever you're dealing with. There is hope for your marriage, whatever you are dealing with. There is hope for your job or for another job.
today. You should be paralyzed emotionally with anxiety over your looks or your reputation or your home or your friends or your sin. God is bigger than all of that. He's in control. And there is hope. There is hope for some of you that you can be saved today. God has provided in His providence, He has provided a way for your sin to be forgiven and for you to know Him, for you to be set free from the chains and the bondage of sin. God has provided. Will you take His provision? There is hope for our friends in Nicaragua who are dealing with political turmoil. There is hope for us today in in a culture that is increasingly growing in ungodliness and even pressuring and persecuting Christians. I was having a conversation with two men yesterday about the, the new pressures that they face in their workplace. This is no surprise for God. God has provided. Trust Him. There is hope. And on an even larger scale, there is hope for a dying world of men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because God is in providential and total control, and Jesus Christ reigns on His throne. Amen? Finally, just to pinpoint this, in case you didn't get this, I want to kind of bring something in focus. The book of Esther isn't just about what God can do or what He did. It's about what God has promised to do. The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will be a blessing to those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The most amazing thing about the Bible and about the Old Testament Because this was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the Bible. And the entire Bible, if you want to get something that ties it all together, it is that God proves He keeps His promise to His people. That's what the book of Esther is about. He is keeping His promise. His promises are sure. He promised He would not let them be destroyed, and He keeps that promise. And He keeps promises to us today, friends, as His children. For those of us that call on the name of Jesus Christ, one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture I want to show to you and I want you to think about, and I'll pray and close. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. What is your hope today? What are you relying on? What are you trusting in? The book of Esther screams to us, even in its silence about God, that God and the Lord Jesus Christ are who we must place our trust and our hope in because He has prepared our mission for us and He prepares us. He is providentially taking care of us. and His promises are always sure. Let's pray. Father, there is no one like You. There is no one in whom we can trust who controls all of the variables. Life does not always go the way that we want or think it should go. The answers to prayer don't always 
appear to be what is needed. But that is where You call us to trust that Your ways are greater than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And You are wiser than we are. But also, You are so loving to us. You have pursued us. You will protect us. And You will carry us through to the end. And there's, a, there's someone in this room today that needs to hear that message because their hope is weak and their trust is weak. And they need to be reminded about Your goodness to them today. Help them to leave here, God, and to not forget it. And as we sing, Lord, may we sing with hearts full of honor and glory to You and love for Your faithfulness to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.